This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Uh, round number two, I spoke in the morning and, um, and I get to eat some word with you again this evening. As has already been said, uh, I am married uh, to an amazing woman called Lusanda, and uh, together we live in Cape Town with our three beautiful uh, girls. Uh, actually, I have a picture for you, so to give you context, uh, this is so that I can uh, warm your hearts and you can overlook any errors, uh, any harsh things I might say in the sermon. Just remember this picture. If you don't like anything I say, Go back to a happy place where you remember this picture and the warm, fuzzy feelings that you had. Uh, from the right, we have right, uh, uh, those two girls on the right side, uh, your right, uh, that is uh, Maisha, who is four, and then her sister uh, Amani, who is three. Uh, they're 16 months apart, and uh, somewhere down there, you've got uh, Rorisang, who is one. And so four, three, and one, and uh, Lusanda, who actually keeps us all sane. Um, but, uh, you know, before this, actually, when I was sitting down, I just, you know, finished coming from this amazing, uh, holy place and we we're worshiping and, uh, she sent me a video, uh, it's bath time. And so there are these three people all in the bath, you know, splashing water and playing. And eventually I go, ah, you know what, this is now, now I feel I can preach. Uh, things are well at home. And so often when you, when you travel, this is the thing that causes anxiety is how's everybody doing at home? And uh, it's not sometimes, uh, sometimes it's not that easy because Lysandra herself actually is a speaker. Uh, she's a, a phenomenal speaker. I'm, I'm happy that you haven't heard her speak yet. I prefer people to meet me first because once they meet her, uh, and then, you know, I lose my shine. And so I, I prefer it when people meet me first. But she's an amazing woman, amazing uh, speaker as well. Uh, but we try when one of us is always uh, then at home. Um, this evening, my uh, honor is to just open up some scripture and try and think about what the Word of God uh, in this particular context means to us, what it would say to us, and see how we can respond together as a community of uh, faith and those who might still be exploring the Christian story. Uh, we're going to do that uh, by looking into a woman, a story about a woman who is somewhat a lesser known hero of the scriptures or falls into that category, lesser known heroes. Uh, she's not a lesser known hero because her impact is less or her contribution to the thinking about the church or about the theology, about the word or what we understand about Christ and about God's heart. She's not less in that sense, but she is a lesser known hero because, uh, as with many women in Scripture who make significant contributions, uh, we male commentators tend to uh, diminish or erase uh, a woman and relegate them into that box of lesser known heroes. So it is my pleasure today to try at least uh, do the opposite of that by highlighting a phenomenal story of a woman who made a phenomenal contribution, uh, although we may think of her as a lesser known hero. My mother is one of those people in my life. I get to travel a lot. I get to do, uh, you know, incredible uh, uh, events or meeting amazing people, uh, enjoy some big platforms and uh, find myself in places where I think, man, this is, this is really, uh, I would have thought this is, is impossible. I'm from one of those places uh, where, you know, when, you know, people ask, just like they ask, can anything good come from Nazareth? And some people... <laughs> you know, tend to ask when I tell them where I'm from, can anything good come from, you know, where you're coming from? Um, but I find myself uh, in places um, where the, I couldn't have imagined myself to be. And uh, one of the lesser known heroes in my life is my own mother. Uh, my mother has played such a significant role in the formative years of my own faith, and she continues to do so. In fact, uh, the way I got my name and the way I think about my name um, 
is, uh, is embedded within a story where my mother helped me to develop a mature doctrine of suffering from, an, from a younger uh, uh, age in terms of my, my, my Christian faith. So uh, the brief story would be this. So when my parents uh, had our firstborn of our, uh, of our siblings, my sister, she was named Ba'atile because they said that the family is expanding. It communicated this idea that the family is expanding. There were already many girls in our family. Uh, and I've done, as you heard, I'm a father of three uh, girls. And so I've done my, uh, you know, my fair bit uh, in expanding that story. But they said, Ba'atile, the family is growing. It's expanding. It's growing, in the, particularly in the direction of girls. Three years later, uh, my parents, uh, my mother gave birth uh, to twin girls. Uh, unfortunately, one of them was stillborn. And my mother describes this time as a time that was really difficult for her because as a mother, her heart had, be, had to be split in half, uh, with one half mourning the loss of life and with the other half celebrating uh, life. And so they named her Deborah, uh, which is this idea that we, we are grateful because my parents said, we are, we are grateful, we have gratitude uh, that you let us keep one. Four years later, my mother uh, gave birth to uh, twin boys, my brother and I, after 48 hours of labor, she won't let me forget that fact, uh, she gave birth uh, to my twin brother and I after a very traumatic uh, labor and uh, delivery process. She went to go and rest several, uh, for several hours. When she woke up from there, she woke up to the terrible news that my twin brother had passed away. And so again, she had to uh, celebrate you know, life and mourn the loss of life at the same time, as she describes it. And... Um, you know, then they named me Mashati because the idea is I was a boy. They'd been praying for a boy, and they felt that they said we are lucky that it's a boy, and that we got to keep one out of the two. So this idea of luck or good fortune, but luck, a better translation. Uh, my brother Neo was born uh, three years after me, and uh, they said thank you. With, well, it's a Neo is a gift, uh, so we receive a gift from God, perhaps to console our hearts, but to add to our family. But we see we receive him as a gift. I wish the story ended there. Uh, but not long after that, uh, my parents again were pregnant uh, with twin boys. And unfortunately, my, my mother had a very late miscarriage and both of them died. And so this is one of the stories that we never really talked about in our family. And, uh, you know, it's like we talk about everything else but this. And this, so when, when we, got, we fell pregnant with our first uh, born, I'd been dying to ask my mom this one question and I was looking for this entry point. And so when the joke started flying, is it going to be twins? Are you guys going to have twins? Or, you know, there was this excitement and this talk. I got an opportunity to ask my mom the question that had been burning in my heart. Is, mom, you stand strong in your faith, in the belief that God is good. But how do you reconcile that with this deep sense of loss and pain that comes from having lost four children? And I remember my mom's uh, response uh, was three, it came in three parts. One, she said, Mashati, you know, there are certain wounds that never fully heal on this side of eternity. She said, secondly, but every time that I've given God my wounded heart to attend to, I've always received it back in a better condition than I've given it to him. And thirdly, that it's for that reason why my hope and my joy is in God and with God in eternity. And some wounds in this life that don't fully heal, she said, on this side of eternity. But every time I've given God my wounded heart to attend to, I've always received it uh, back. I've received it back in a better condition than when I gave it to him. And it's for that reason that my joy and my hope with God or in God and with God in eternity. I feel the need to, to share this story. It's not part of what I'm going to say apart from the fact that there is a a, a, a woman, a lesser known hero, but because I want to say, let me encourage you to think deeply and develop your doctrine of suffering and mature in your doctrine of suffering uh, right now, because I meet so many people who, because of their inability to process what it means to the, in this world to process difficulties, that their faith often takes a knock, and so the view of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God is dependent on circumstances and sometimes the inability to integrate those circumstances into a theological framework and understand what is God doing when I'm going through this is sometimes a disconnect. So we're saying you are good, and we said you'll never, God, you will never let us down. And 
holistically or over the long run, we understand that to mean that over a timeline, extended timeline, our aspirations and our longings will be satisfied by the goodness of God, that we will come into this place where we affirm all the time that God is good. But between now and then, we may go through things where God lets us down. Sometimes it will feel like God is letting us down. Sometimes it will be that God is letting us down. If you've been a Christian as long as Pastor Philip uh, has been, then you know that um, there are certain prayers that he thanks God that God did not answer. <laughs> there are certain things, God, I prayed, oh, I'm so grateful that you let me down in this time of my life, for instance, as an example. But it's deeper than that. I'm saying let God develop your doctrine of suffering, your doctrine of unanswered prayer so that you can understand and truly affirm with maturity when you say, God, you are good. You are free from blame. There is no moral impurity in you. There is no accusation that can stick on you. You are pure. You are blameless, and you are good, and your heart towards me is to do good. You need to affirm that, but within a mature way. Now, turn, please, with me to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 to 28. We're going to read about the Syrophoenician woman, as she is known affectionately by Matthew, the Syro, actually Mark, the Syrophoenician woman. If you're there, say, okay, too few of you. I'll wait just for a minute or two. It'll come up on the screen, actually, maybe for the sake of time. Let's go. I'm reading from verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And out came a Canaanite woman from that area who kept shouting, Show mercy upon me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. But Jesus replied to her not a word, and her disciples came and begged him, Send her away. She's coming after us, shouting. Jesus replied, I was not sent to anyone except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman came and bowed down before him and said, Lord, help me. Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she replied. For even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, my dear woman, you have great faith. Your wish is granted. Her daughter was cured from that moment. This is not an easy text at face value when you think about it, right? If all you ever read was this text and this encounter and you had to summarize it in a tweet, it'll be very difficult what you choose. And it will actually be telling what you leave out would actually be telling about your understanding of Jesus and this particular context. Would it be Jesus' interaction? Jesus is interacting with a desperate woman, a desperate mother who is asking, who is pleading, pleading for her daughter's life. And Jesus calls her a dog. She has to persist, and eventually she gets what she wants. But if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, <laughs> then maybe you're sweeping certain things under the carpet without trying to wrestle with them. And my encouragement is whenever you answer some things like this, be, be open, be honest, ask questions. Because my job, as Pastor Philip has said, part of it at least is to answer, uh, uh, talk to people and meet people at their point of objections or reservations that they may have or uh, questions uh, uh, that are raised whenever, we, whenever Christian truth claims are proclaimed. And so part of the question Oh, part of the thing that I've discovered is that the harder sometimes the questions, the more glorious the answers. And so if we don't wrestle or, or stay in that place where we wrestle with the questions, we miss out on the glorious answers that God has for us embedded in his word and just through time of study. And so to understand the story, let me give you some few uh, hermeneutical tools or interpretive tools that are going to help you to understand what is actually going on here. And then we're going to go back to read it and I'll provide a verse-by-verse -verse or a commentary on what is going on. And you'll see how the story really uh, unravels and brings relief to us who are concerned at this stage. So 
uh, I could say many things here, but let me just give you a few tools needed to understand the scripture, particularly focusing on Jesus' interaction or Jesus and woman. Okay, this will help us. So it's assumed that you've been reading not just this verse only, but you've been reading before, all right? So this uh, occurs later on in the book of Matthew. Uh, Mark actually also covers uh, the same story, but that you've been reading. And so in this case, you've been introduced to the character of Jesus. You've been introduced to the way he's dealing, uh, the way he's uh, interacting with women. And there are certain conclusions that you may have drawn already, which are correct, which would be in the likes of this. Firstly, that Jesus knew the secret thoughts and the motivations of those he interacted with. So Jesus knew the secret thoughts uh, and motivations of those that he was interacting with. This is not particular to women, but to everybody. But of course, in this instance, you should have that in mind as you think about how to decode or understand this text. Jesus, secondly, Jesus' view and, and the treatment of women, particularly looking at his speech, he shows that he has a high regard for the full intrinsic value of women. And first, let me say this. He's, the fact that he spoke to women, okay, let me go there. The fact that he spoke to women in public, now for us in our modern times, this seems like a low bar. It seems like an obvious thing. But it was, it was something that would have been a scandal or scandalous in Jesus' time. He was a rabbi. Uh, he spoke to women that he wasn't married to. Uh, women who were second-class citizens, and I'll show you uh, how. And, but it was the idea that they wouldn't, this interaction, he would be lowering himself to do so. But Jesus didn't care about the social conventions that framed women unjustly in this way and dictated how he should be speaking, who should he be speaking to. He shows this high regard, but also not only in just speaking to them, but the content of his speech shows this high regard for the intrinsic, the full intrinsic worth and value of women. For instance, when he speaks to the woman who, has, who is described as having this bent over issue, he calls her daughter of Abraham, something that might not be meaningful to us today, but to those who are listening, to the Pharisees, what Jesus does there is he, he recognizes the equal spiritual status of a woman to a man. When he says this, they're used to son of Abraham, but now he says daughter of Abraham, a tribute to recognizing this equal spiritual status of woman to man, and this would have really been uh, uh, something uh, 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 irregular for those who are listening to him. So not only addressing in public, but the content of his speech, but also you see in Jesus' interaction with women that he was sensitive to the social and the religious handicaps with which women had to struggle. And not only just being sensitive to those handicaps, but he applied himself to lift those burdens. And we're going to see that also in this text. Finally, Jesus let women know, uh, you see this in his interaction, that they had agency, they recognized their agency, their intelligence, and that they, 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 they were intrinsically worthy of God's love and concern. And this is something that comes up also in this particular text as well. So Jesus' view and treatment, a lot can be said when you look at this, and I challenge you to do a study and look at how Jesus interacted with women and see what you can summarize about Jesus' interaction with women. But these are some of the points that you might have and know about who he is. Secondly, it's also not only Jesus' interaction, but how women are portrayed in the Gospels. And so I've given an example. For instance, if you do a study and look at how women are portrayed in Mark, where the story is also paralleled. Okay, Matthew, uh, uh, then this is where we'll be focusing on Matthew's account. But Mark also has the same account. Uh, and the way he frames women will be, is interesting. Uh, maybe three points. One in the, in the Gospel of Mark, women are presented as the only characters, for instance, who serve Jesus unselfishly. The men, in contrast, uh, are looking for status authority, what they can get out of it. That's how Mark portrays uh, women in his Gospel. Secondly, uh, it's the woman who anoint Jesus before and after his death, and their actions are contrasted sharply also with that of the male uh, religious and political 
authorities who are responsible for Jesus' death. Thirdly, women are portrayed as being the key witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, this might, again, not be very meaningful to us today, but you go back into a culture where the testimony of women was considered to be very lowly. It was nothing. In court, it was, it was something that couldn't stand in court. The testimony of a woman in court was not regarded as something as valid. And so you take the greatest historical event in the history of the universe, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you put it in the mouth of women as key witnesses is a huge theological statement uh, to make about the value and the consideration that God places on women in the Gospel of Mark. So, a lot more can be said, but this is very important as we go into the interaction that we think about the fact that Jesus' own interaction with people is really revealed that he has a way of reading people's private emails. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what their motivations are. Even when they ask a question, he knows what's behind the question. He knows their state of mind. This... Uh, this should inform the way we understand his interaction, but also his overall view of uh, or interaction with women. Now, let's go back again, and we're going to take this verse by verse to understand what is actually going on now in this text. With that in mind, are you ready? Are you ready? Come on. All right. In verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Let's pause there for a second. What's happening here? Jesus withdraws from Jewish territory. Both Mark and Matthew place the story, uh, and there's a story before this where the Pharisees, both of them have this account. Okay, the story occurs after this account where Jesus and his disciples are caught by the Pharisees eating without properly washing their hands. And the Pharisees take them to account on this. They challenge Jesus on this. And Jesus challenges them back because what he sees in their heart is that they're concerned for out, with outward appearances when it comes to the issue of, uh, of purity. They're concerned with this observance where other people can look and say that is a holy person because this is what they do, but they're concerned with the outside things. Meanwhile, their hearts are rotten and they don't, pay, they don't give attention to the inward moral purity that reflects the purity of God. And Jesus challenges them. And that famous statement, it's not what goes into, but what goes out of a man's mouth that makes him unclean. This is what Jesus challenges them. And so uh, Jesus withdraws from Jewish territory and Jewish t uh, opposition, right? This time has been marked with this uh, a sense of fighting. He withdraws. They're going to rest. And they're resting in Phoenician territory, Galilee is bordered northwest by this Phoenician territory of whom Tyre and Sidon are the principal cities. These are the cities, the principal cities of this Phoenician territory that uh, we hear. And Tyre and Sidon, if you are reading your Old Testament, they are often condemned by Old Testament prophets as uh, the most uh, stubborn enemies of Israel. Okay, so immediately there's a, there's a setup where, okay, we're thinking the Phoenician territory, the cities are Tyre and Sidon. This is where Jesus goes to, he withdraws from Jewish territory, he goes to Tyre and Sidon. Now, Matthew is very careful to say that Jesus entered the region. So he's not telling us necessarily that he went into the cities themselves. Uh, we suspect that the cities are mentioned to give us context of how uh, 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 strange this would be. Uh, and also how different, basically, Jesus is interacting with the other. But he'll make that more explicit. Again, this is not, we're not given uh, the idea that this is Jesus going on a mission to the pagan cities like Jonah to Nineveh. But we're given this idea that he's just going there to rest with his disciples. He's not initiating contact with the locals or with this woman. It's the woman and others who initiate contact with Jesus. All right. Now, let's look at verse 22. Because drama is about to unfold. And out came a Canaanite woman from that area who kept shouting, Show mercy upon me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Here, again, the woman is said to, to come out. This is mentioned, right? So that we can understand that 
she's leaving, or at least partly understand that she's left her daughter at home. All right, she's coming out, a point which Mark, if you read Mark, Mark makes that point more explicit. So she comes out, but also Matthew makes the racial context of this encounter explicit in two ways. Firstly, he says, this woman is from that area. So firstly, out came a Canaanite woman from that area. Okay, so this is not a Jewish uh, area, and this woman is from that area. So we already understand at least some part in the racial context, but most importantly, he uses this term. She is a Canaanite woman. Okay, this is not the current ethnic term uh, that is actually being used. I just took Mark's term. Mark says she's a Syrophoenician, which is more geographically correct and more current in this time, but Matthew says she is a Canaanite woman. All right, this is outdated language in this time, in Old Testament times, it was reserved for those enemies of Israel, the most persistent and insidious of Israel's enemies. So this woman is from that area, and she is a Canaanite. It can't get more other. She is not one of us than those two descriptions. That's what Matthew is telling us in setting up this story. Then we see that what she does is she says to Jesus, Lord, her, her, her dress to Jesus Lord, son of David, show mercy upon me. She, she uses, very interesting, one, she uses just like some of the blind men who asked for mercy earlier on in chapter 9, verse 27. They also come and they say, son of David, they ask for mercy as well. But this is slightly different because she uses a messianic title by placing them together, Lord, son of David, and the fact that she's a Gentile. She's not a, she's not a Jew. This is interesting because she knows, immediately we, we know she knows what she's doing. She has some idea of Judaism. She has some idea of who he is at least. And she is appealing to what she knows about him from within his own context. Lord, son of David, show mercy. But she knows what she's doing as she, read, as she calls him those two. In verse 23, but Jesus replied to her, not a word. And his disciples came and begged him, send her away. She's coming after us, shouting. Okay. Now, given the attitude, what, Jesus' immediate response is to ignore her. Jesus is silent. He ignores her. But now, given the attitude that some Jewish people would have had at this time, some Jewish men would have had towards Gentiles and Gentile women, there's nothing strange that Jesus is doing. His behavior would have been seen as something that is normal, expected. In fact, silence was kind. Verbal abuse would have been more common. Her silence was a kinder response. Here's a prayer, for instance, that you find in some of this time that people prayed. Here's a prayer. They prayed, blessed be the Lord God that he did not make me a Gentile dog, slave or a servant, nor a woman in that order. Thank you, God, that you didn't make me a Gentile or other, that you didn't make me a slave or a servant or a woman. Hallelujah. This was the prayer that reflected the attitude that was so ingrained that it was even a prayer of thanksgiving. You understand? This was deep. And given that attitude, of course, Jesus is silence, ignoring this woman, then is seen even as a kindness, so to speak. Now, so far Jesus is playing the part. Uh, this woman persists. She keeps on persisting. She's being ignored, but she keeps on persisting, maybe suggesting that she is not willing to play the part that is given to her. This is your part. You should accept it. This is how you're unjustly framed in this na narrative. Just play your part. They are the main characters in the story. You are an extra in this movie. She's not willing to play that part. She keeps on persisting. Maybe because she's a mother who's desperate for her child. Jesus is silent, but his disciples are not. They are annoyed. It's not just the sense of wanting to protect Jesus. They actually show this uh, self-centered annoyance. She is coming after us. She's shouting. 
She's annoying us. And so what they do, I mean, presumably 12 strong men could just lift this woman and take her away. But what they do instead is they come to Jesus, send her away, suggesting that, Jesus, why don't you just do what, what she wants and then send her away? Then she's going to go away. She'll stop bothering us. Now, this is fascinating because what they are doing, they're showing this unquestioning confidence in Jesus' power to exercise demons, but yet they're showing this lack of awareness of the racial issues that Jesus is about to raise. Unquestioning confidence in the power of Jesus, but yet blind to the context, the relational context. Jesus, please do what, what she wants and send her away. So Jesus responds in verse 24. Jesus replied, I was not sent to anyone except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is still speaking to the disciples here. And his reply, of course, to the disciples now puts into words what maybe this is what they're thinking. This is what explains why he's been ignoring her or his reluctance to help this woman. Well, simply put, this woman's plea, this woman's request falls outside of the scope of operation for a Jewish Messiah. Her request falls outside of the scope of operation for a Jewish Messiah. This is what I was sent to do. Her request is there. doesn't qualify. Of course, let me say this. Spoiler alert. This is not what Jesus thought. He verbalizes the prejudice in the hearts of those who are with him. Firstly, with his disciples and, of course, his culture. He verbalizes it. They think he stands with them at this stage. But in this, he issues a challenge to the woman. And the woman accepts this challenge. Watch. In verse 25, but the woman, she takes this as a cue, but the woman came and bowed before him and said, Lord, help me. So she hears this explicit response, negative response to her plea being spoken. Remember, Jesus hasn't been talking to her. He's been talking to the disciples. First he ignores her, then talks to the disciples. When she hears this, she comes closer. She takes it as an invitation to engage. She receives a challenge and she engages. Lord, help me. So far, this woman had been shouting from a distance. Now, she comes up to Jesus with a personal approach. There's no argument Simply just a plea, right, with a posture that's different. Jesus, uh, Jesus had put words, right, the, or, 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 uh, words, or what his, uh, to words what his silence had implied, but to his disciples. And having heard this, she responds. The stakes are raised much higher than they were before. And again, Jesus responds. Or a reply, sorry, in verse 26, Jesus replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So Jesus first says no, ignores her, says no. Then now he introduces a parable that adds insult to injury. Now, some commentators would say, well, look, the word dog there in, in Greek, if you read it in Greek, is like uh, the version of it is it means really little dog or puppy. And so that's much better. But in any culture, <laughs> all right, referring to somebody as a dog is very offensive. I'm yet to find a culture where it's not. But it certainly was in this culture, especially because it was also a deliberate term for Gentiles by some Jewish people. So in this context, it would be normal to say, well, you're a dog as a, as a, as a Gentile. And so it doesn't help. But now this is where things take a drastic turn. So Jesus, uh, basically, the logic of the parable is this. It's just saying, look, children are in a position of right and privilege. Dogs are not. And so to take something that belongs to the dogs and give it to, I mean, to, to take something that belongs to the children and give it to the dogs, this is morally wrong. It's another challenge. She accepts it, but now she shines in rhetorical flourish. What, watch what happens Next, because this woman now is, takes an opportunity to shine in verse 27. So Jesus said, it's not right. Her immediate response is, yes, it is, Lord. 
she replied. For even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Remember when she said, Lord, help me. She used again the title of Lord. And in this case, when she hears a negative, she comes and she says, Lord, help me. This is not even just a plea. It's more than a plea. When you read it in its context, she is indicating to Jesus and making it known to Jesus that she is aware of what he's doing. She's aware of who he is. Basically, it translates better this way. Lord or Jesus, I know you and you are going to help me. It's more affirmative than it is a plea. Lord, I know you, and you are going to help me. So when Jesus says, well, it's not right then for us to take what belongs to children and give to dogs, she engages further. Yes, it is, Lord, she replied, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This is incredible theological insight that, and she contributes to a bigger theological discussion uh, and one of the most important doctrines about the universality of the gospel. Because what she says is this. She, firstly, she says, well, she brings this debate to an end. This was where the debate comes to an end. This is where it reaches its climax and it ends with a feisty response. She refuses to accept this apparent application of Jesus' words. Sorry, your request just doesn't meet the minimum requirement um, you know, for, a Jewish, uh, for Jewish Messiah's attention. She refuses that. Then furthermore, she uses Jesus' own parable against him. She says, well, okay, in your parable, in your own framework, I wish to point out that even the dogs deserve to eat. Fine, you might not give them the food that belongs to the children, but even they deserve to eat, and they should then be fed. Again, the focus shifts here from those who receive to the one who gives. You see, she shifts the focus. She goes, oh, I can understand uh, things like, you know, priorities and uh, maybe on a timeline, you know, first to the Jew, then to the Jew. I can understand all of that. But understanding that this Messiah is more than just the people's Messiah. He's all people's Messiah, and he has the ability. What he has to offer is enough for everyone on that basis. Even if I accepted that I am a dog in that story, the dogs deserve to be fed, and you have more than enough to feed everyone. She wins the debate publicly. And you know what? Jesus is very happy about this. Because in the next verse, watch what he says in the next verse. Jesus replied to her, oh, my dear woman. This, you, when you read this and you, when you study this, this uh, response, this immediate response, it, it's, it's full with such warm emotion and a sense of, Joy fills Jesus' heart. My dear woman, you have great faith. Your wish is granted. And her daughter was cured from that moment. This almost appears like a complete reversal of his stance. To ignore her, to say no, speaking to the disciples, and then to tell her actually that, sorry, I can't do this for you by insinuating in the parable that she's the dog and what he has to give belongs to children. Almost like a complete reversal of his stance. He then affirms the justness or the justice of her case. And he applauds her boldness, right, for her refusal to accept defeat. Well done. You have great faith. But actually here, and in Jesus admitting this public, you have, you've won the argument and your request has been granted, this is where now it becomes much clearer what he's doing. This is a debating ploy that Jesus was using to create a platform for this great faith that this woman has, that Jesus knew about, to come out so that people can see it, that she can be proud of it, but that it can teach and speak into the racial context and the prejudice of this context. So Jesus is teaching all in one by creating this platform, and this is very common. In this time, this was very common for teachers of Jesus' uh, standard to use certain this, uh, this kind of debating ploy, this kind of argument. But what is interesting is you see a man here who's not wanting to protect his ego, but a man who's wanting to leverage his power, his social power within this context 
so that this woman can shine. In fact, when he commends and he says, you have great faith, it is the only time in Matthew that faith is unqualified as just great faith or qualified as being great faith. The centurion earlier has been said his faith is favorable compared to those in Israel. It was qualified. But this woman's faith is just said to be great. Peter and the other disciples, in comparison in Matthew, when you, when you read the description, they have little faith. But this woman has great faith that Jesus affirms. So you see a Jesus who's applying himself on behalf of this woman to make a point, but to also let her brilliance to shine. He's creating this platform deliberately so that her brilliance can shine. Some key ideas that we take away for application in this text. Firstly, it is a story. It's a, it's a parenting story. That's what it is. As we read it in its plain, simple form, this is a mother who's concerned about her child. This is an important point because she plays an intercessory role. I don't know how many of you are parents, but I assume that all of you have parents. Uh, some of you have mothers who are praying for you or who have prayed for you like my mother has. And so there's a, there's a lesson here about us as parents really playing this intercessory role for our children, getting the best resources for them and, be, and having Christ as the best resource in the world to give to our children. And let me say this, it's not just a mother thing, it's a father thing. Sometimes uh, society like ours sets a really low bar for fathers like me. Um, when I, for instance, I'll give you an example. When I spend time with my children, I get applauded. People say, well done, you're a good father, you're such a good father, you spend time with your children. When my wife spent time with them, it's her job. People take it, that's what happens, right? And that's why we end up adopting terms like, if I'm going, I'm babysitting my children uh, tonight. Uh, but when my wife is staying with them, she's just staying with them, right? We adopt those terms. So it's not just, and again, this encouragement to say, we must raise the bar, we must say, on the father's side of, of things in this case. But this is a, a fascinating parenting story. Secondly, it's, it's a story about challenging aspects of our culture that minimize and erase the significance of the needs, the roles, and the values of women in our society. Read in face value, this is what Jesus is doing. He's doing that lifting of the burdens that women had to always wrestle with and struggle with in this context. And you see that in other stories and his interaction. And again, if we are followers of Christ, then what we do is we see Christ as an example for us to follow in our own context. And look, let's not erase the maleness of Christ in this story. He's a man who's challenging these things, of these aspects of his culture. So again, although it's an encouragement to all Christians, but also the direct application is that, listen, how to be a faithful Christian man is by following after the example of Jesus and challenging these aspects of culture that do this, right? That minimize, that erase the significance of the needs, the roles, the value of women in our society. As an encouragement, as a third point, uh, it's also a story about challenging these social conventions that perpetuate uh, and justify direct or structural or cultural violence. Now, we don't have time to go into the different types of violence we find in our society today. Uh, however, we see that uh, this woman really refused to play the part uh, that where she was unjustly framed. And so we take courage, at least, from her persistence, uh, her refusal to accept the script or the role that she's been given in this script where she's been framed unjustly or unfairly. She simply refuses. And she has boldness and courage to approach Christ when everybody's saying, you don't belong here, you shouldn't be here, you shouldn't say this, you shouldn't speak out of turn. She does. And she is rewarded because of that. There's also, it's a story also, and we get this from the disciples. This is what I write down on the first, the fourth point. This is a lesson I learned from the way that the disciples interacted with, these, with this woman. I cannot have the power of Christ without the person of Christ. I need to understand this. This is a very important point, that sometimes I go after the benefits of knowing Christ and the power and the victory of Christ in my life in certain ways. Uh, but actually, if I'm not concerned with the person of Christ, his character, 
this is not how it's supposed to be. I cannot have the power of Christ without the person of Christ. And as an application, my view and treatment of people is a mirror of my relationship with Christ. That's a strong point to make, but it is true. In fact, here's a scripture. Here's a scripture. And and, uh, this morning I spoke about 1 John 4, uh, verse 20. Uh, It's a a powerful uh, scripture that really puts this into perspective for us. And what the apostle says there is, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is very strong and very direct. So, if I'm going to confess my love for God, it's going to show in the way I love people. And in the way I don't love people, you can make inferences about my relationship with God. That's what that says to us. It's a mirror of my relationship with Christ. Sometimes we make it so internal. about We we make our relationship with Christ very internal, and we focus and major on the personal. We forget about the interpersonal. God cares about how we treat each other as well. Okay, five. Two more points, we're done. Five. It's also a lesson, a story about persistent and courageous faith. Right? This woman just persisted. And we see the picture of faith here emerging as well. Many people think that faith is this blind trust. Okay, leap in the dark. Close your eyes and just have faith. Believe in spite of the evidence or in the absence of evidence. That's not what this woman did, and that's not how the Bible frames the concept of faith. Faith is not believing where there's no evidence or believing in spite of the evidence, but faith is trusting in that which you have good reason to believe is true. This is how it works. She put it this way, Lord, I know you. You're going to help me. You see, it's this. I enter into a relationship with Christ, and this relationship where Christ forgives me. Firstly, I have access, what he promised me, the forgiveness of sins, a new relationship with God, right? And a promise of eternal life. When I respond to that and I taste a piece of that, I've got more reasons to trust him. And as I trust him, I get into proximity with him. I have a closer relationship with him. And then I've got access to more of his promises. And the more of his promises I have access to, the more reasons I have to trust him. And the more I trust him, and it becomes a cycle. Trusting in that which you have good reason to believe is true, not in spite of evidence, not in spite of truth. I say this is important because some people think that often when you come into church, especially some of us who this was taught to us, when we come into church, we've got to leave this thing called our intellect and our brain, you know, at the gate and take up this thing called faith and bring it to church. And then we go into the university space, we've got to leave this thing called faith and pick up this thing called the intellect and reason and logic and go and engage. Uh, that's not the biblical view, and you shouldn't have to live that way. Uh, Faith is not in spite or not uh, against uh, logic and reason. Finally, it's really an invitation in the story, and this is the first articulations of an important doctrine. Uh, It's an invitation. It says that this story is for all people. It opens up the story of Jesus Christ, God's story, not as a story for just Uh, an an individual group of people or a special group of people. It says this is a story for all people and all people are invited. This is God's story that he's inviting all people into. And the story is very simple. In the beginning, God creates everything. He's the one that brings everything into existence. He creates uh, 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 the universe. He creates earth. The best way to describe his creation is shalom, Uh, It's good, but everything is working as God intended it to work. But because of rebellion, and it's the second part of the story, uh, is the fall that we talk about. In that part of the story, man rebels against God. And in that rebellion, then something happens in the story. There's a malfunction that is introduced in God's created world, and that shalom is broken. And things aren't working the way that God wants them to work. The relationship with God, man and God is broken. The relationship with man and with himself Man is at war within himself, but he's also at war with others as well. The right relationship that people are meant to have is also broken. 
the right relationship that people are meant to have with the world and the, the, the actual uh, earth is also broken. And so what does God do? Because he's loving, because he's good, because he's kind, because he is a just God, it's his character, he's a fixing God, what he does is he's going to fix his cosmos. Enter Jesus Christ as a champion of that justice work and he's revealed, he's born into the world and he begins to undo the effects of the malfunctions that were introduced in God's world. And we have access to those in the person of Christ. And having access to those things, including and starting with reconciliation with God to the forgiveness of sins that I don't have to pay for my sins, being separated eternally from God, but I enter into a relationship with Him. And this relationship then invites me into what God is doing, the other things He's doing to fix His cosmos here and now. And it has a social implication. It has a, it has a relief that people can actually have when they say, thank God that you saved. Jesus, thank God that you saved Philip because, look, he's involved in your work right now to, to preach Jesus, but to also apply Jesus in our communities. This kind of work, as an example, if we were doing what we're supposed to be doing, following after Jesus' example, then we then of course, as a church, we'll be bringing a solution of creating communities, for instance, where gender-based violence would not be something that also is mirrored in the life of the church community. We would be a safe space. We would be that community where women would be able to come in and go, I can breathe in this community, for instance. So it has social implications that are powerful into speaking Jesus is the answer. See, sometimes we say that Jesus is the answer and people say, how? Can you explain it? This is how we can explain it. But it's good news for everyone. And that's a story that everybody is invited to be a part of because of Jesus Christ. Will you say amen? All right, let's pray. Won't you spend a few minutes to pray your own prayer in your heart about what you feel during this time was important that maybe God was highlighting to you, teaching you, inspiring you, encouraging you, maybe healing you, maybe challenging you, maybe convicting you, and you want to respond. Just say, God, I hear you, or I think I hear you. I think this is what you're saying to me, and if it is, this is what I'm saying to you, back to you. God, I'll do better. God, thank you for your healing. Lord, thank you that you're challenging me to go and speak to somebody about this area of my life that I've never really opened up. Maybe this is the area where the doctrine of suffering needs to mature in your life. And you're looking to speak maybe to somebody. There's a phenomenal team here of elders and pastoral staff that would love to walk the journey with you. Please, you don't have to go through things alone. We're a community and we're here for you. Ask God to give you the boldness and the courage to come and speak to somebody that you can trust and connect and say, look, I need, please, could you help me to affect the victory of Christ that Pastor Philip spoke about and prayed for us in this area of my life? Maybe you're a man and you're saying, you know what, I have done my share bit and in contributing to, to this or these problems that you've highlighted and I just want to repent before God. Do so now. There's an opportunity before God. If we're faithful to confess our sins, or if we confess our sins, God is faithful really to forgive us and bring us into right relationship and the right processes for that. And you might need to also come up to Pastor Philip and say, Pastor Philip, help me understand and help me to understand what process I need to go through. Maybe it's sufficient in your heart, but maybe it's more than that. Pastor Philip's here, the team's here for you. But maybe you've been praying for something and today you just you needed to hear the encouragement of persistent and courageous faith as well. Will you be restored and renewed in your energy, or may you have more energy to keep praying. Oh, keep praying. 
But this time, rather than just pleading, pray from a face of faith. Think about what God has already done. Think about your journey. Think about who he is. And from that place of confidence, say, Lord, I know you and you're going to help me. Lord, I know you. Like this woman, Lord, I know you and you're going to help me. Will you persevere? Will you make a commitment now to persevere just like this amazing woman did? Finally, maybe you're here also. You just need to accept that invitation into God's story, to be part of God's story through his son, Jesus Christ, by saying, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I confess my sin, leading my life the way that is not pleasing to you, without making reference to you, without acknowledging you. Lord, would you forgive me? Not doing, not being, everything that your word requires me to do and to be. I'm sorry. Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, so that I don't have to die because of my sin. Thank you that he died on the cross, and three days later, you raised him from the dead. Thank you that through that sacrifice, through his resurrection, I have access to the forgiveness of sins, and I am forgiven. I have a new relationship with you. Lord, give me that new relationship starting today. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to follow you, Jesus. Would you help me to turn away from everything that the Bible calls sin? Be my Lord. Lead me. Be my king from this day onwards. Maybe that's what you're praying. I'm going to ask Pastor Philip to come and close for us in a word of prayer. Sustain that attitude of prayer as you pray the different parts of your, your convictions. Such a spirit of, of healing in this place here tonight. I just so on my heart that God is wanting to, to reach into the, the deepest part of some of us and work a healing, a powerful healing. Specifically for two groups. On the one group, perhaps you were here and even as Machlatze was sharing about the significant loss his family has gone through in, in their life. And then somehow his mom just being able to give her heart to God and always get it back in a better state. Perhaps you're here and you're just in that space where you're so aware of the hurt and brokenness of just some sense of significant loss. Tonight you want to bring your heart to Jesus with faith, believing, knowing in that which you have good reason to be true that you will get it back in a better state. Tonight if that's you, we want to pray with you. And there's a second group and it might just be one person. I just have a sense in my heart. It's probably a few of us here tonight where at some stage we felt like the outsider. At some stage we were the dog. At some stage we were the Syrophoenician woman. At some stage we were the one that was excluded and not welcomed. And of all of the amazing things of the gospel that has to be right up there with them, that it is for everyone. That when Jesus looks at the Syrophoenician woman, he does not see a dog. He sees a woman who is in need of grace. And tonight, if that's you and you've been the outsider, whether here in church even or outside, and I just say to some of us right now, as we were speaking and as Bakhlatse was sharing, there was just this, the Holy Spirit was pressing on that moment and reminding us of that memory that I sent tonight. Jesus wants to come and heal and redeem. And he wants you to know that you are not the outsider, not in his eyes. Not in his eyes. To him, you are, that's what the scripture says, you are the accepted in the beloved. You are part of a fellow citizen in the household of God. You are as much a daughter or a son of Abraham as anyone else. If you have that moment where you know you were the outsider and just if the Holy Spirit is just bringing that to your remembrance again, God wants to heal something in your spirit, something in your identity, something in your heart that happened in that moment. And tonight we want to pray with you for that. Also, I just want to respond to the word. Just for us as a church, just lay down a, a marker and in a sense lift the bar and say, we want to follow Christ. And for us, there are no outsiders in this house. There are no outsiders. There's no one who's disqualified. There's no one who's beyond grace. There's no one who's too far. Not in terms of leadership, not in terms of ministry, not in terms of being part of the family. 
I just want to settle that there. Irrespective of your background, irrespective of where you've been, irrespective of your gender or your skin color or your identity or whatever it may be. There are no outsiders. There are no outsiders. But there's something so beautiful about this woman that when there was, and I want to encourage us with this as we close, and then we're going to pray with some people. I so love how Maklatsi shared that there was this woman, and you know she could have turned around and gone back to where she was coming from, but she chose to hold on to the goodness of God and to press through. I want to encourage us in that. Let's press into the goodness of God. Let perhaps in that moment where I feel like the outsider, take hold of that and press on and say, I know I am not. I know I am not, and I'm going to press through. Let's press on and press through. And I just sense tonight some of us need to press through in our receiving from healing from Christ, receiving our healing from Christ tonight. Can we stand this evening? I want us to pray together just as we close. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word, which is always true. Thank you for Machlatze, for the gift that he is, for the message you laid on his heart and the way he just broke open your word to us tonight. And as he broke open your word, God, some of our hearts were broken open. We want to bring the brokenness in our hearts. We want to bring the hurt in our hearts before you. And we choose tonight to believe that you are a good God. And that as we give our hearts to you, we will Get them back better in Jesus' name. Tonight, if you need prayer in one of those two areas, I want to ask you just to step forward. We want to pray with you. I want to encourage you, be like that Syrophoenician woman and press in. Don't say, I'm okay, I'll deal with it in my own time, my own way. There's a healing and a grace that comes only from Christ. Just step forward. I just sense it so strongly in my heart that God wants to do something. It might just be one individual. I I have a feeling it's more of us. Just step forward right now. If you felt like you've been that outsider and the Holy Spirit is reminding you of that hurt. Or alternatively, you've been through just a significant sense of loss. You want to give your heart to Jesus that he may heal it. Just come forward. We want to pray with you. We want to pray. Thank you, ma'am. Just come forward. It's nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed about. I so love the altar that we come to God. We come and as we come, God takes away our shame and our fear and he replaces it with healing, with the real powerful healing. There's something so beautiful God's wanting to do in our identities tonight as he just comes and restores those moments as he brings that healing. As he puts his arms around us and he draws us into his circle and he says, you are not on the outside. You are not. Can we have some facilitators just standing around these saints who've responded? Just lay hands on them. Anyone else needs pray? Just come forward. We're just gonna we're gonna pray with you individually. Just need some more facilitators to step forward in the front here. Jesus, I thank you for your power to heal. I thank you tonight that you're working such a beautiful miracle in individual hearts, Lord God. And as you do it individually, you do it for us corporately, God, that tonight. You're restoring something so profound, Lord, in our hearts that you are for everyone, Lord. That with you there is no outsider, there is no Gentile, and there's no Jew. There's no man, there's no woman, there's no outsider and insider. There's no other and us. And I thank you, Jesus, that even tonight you come and break that wall of us and them. Lord, even with unbelievers, Lord God, those who are in the outside that our heart would not see an us and them but our heart would see the grace of Christ poured out for all men, for all women. And right now, Jesus, for everyone who's responded, I pray right now that you come and do what only you can do, that you come and heal, that you come and restore, that you come and make whole, that you come and redeem, Jesus. God, I thank you that as you take them back to that moment, it's not to relive the pain, but it's to redeem the pain, Lord. Just sense God's wanting to come around us tonight and just put his arm around you and draw you into his love draw you into his circle. Just allow him to do that. I just sense for some of us, as God is drawing us in, he's just bringing us to this powerful moment of forgiveness. Not of us saying it's okay what they did, not saying it's okay of the shame, not saying it's okay when we were labeled as the outsider, but saying I don't choose to hold it against you. I choose to let it go. I don't want God to visit the same evil that you visited on me. I to visit it on you. I want him rather to give you what I wish I had in that moment. If that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now, I just want you to respond.
You know, as they're standing around, you just begin to pray for everyone as you're standing around them. To just lay hands on them and trust God just to work a work. Gift of healing right in their hearts. I'm going to ask the band to step forward as well. And they're going to continue to lead us in a time of song. As we're praying for the saints in frontier. If you want to just continue in just where you're at, just spending time with God, you're more than welcome to do that. Don't feel a rush to leave if God's doing something in your heart. For those who do need to go, there is coffee and tea outside. Have some coffee and tea, especially those who are visiting would love to get to know you. I just want to, from the background of this message, invite you again to join us for our family camp. There's something so beautiful, if, especially those who perhaps you're here as church and you feel a little bit on the outside. There's no better way to change that in your own heart than to commit to be on the inside. We want you to have that. We want you to have that grace. We, the invitation is open for anyone to Come and meet the rest of the family. Be part of the family. Grow in the family. On this weekend, the camp is going to be absolutely amazing. Please do join us. We'd love to have you there. For those who need to go, thank you so much for your time. God bless you. I pray that this week, this passage, you're going to just dig into and just have even more of an appreciation and understanding of the grace of God's gospel extended to you and to me. Because in truth, we were all outsiders. Until he came and he fetched us and he drew us into him. May you grow in that knowledge the grace, that encouragement in this week. God bless you all. Thank you so much again for your time. Can we just give Machlatze a hand, just of appreciation for his time this evening. We're going to keep praying with all of these saints in front. If you still need prayer, you're welcome to step forward. We'd love to pray with you as well. God bless you all. Thanks, Martha. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.